0: Good evening. My name is Ed Newell. I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the 2020 Cumberland Lodge Annual Dialogue. If this is your first involvement with us, we're an educational charity and we specialise in bringing people together from different sectors, walks of life and perspectives to discuss important issues in society. Our aim is to generate fresh thinking and good ideas that can inform policy and practice. So do have a look at our website, uh, especially the Read, Watch, Listen section, where you'll find a rich collection of reports, videos, blogs, and podcasts. Most of our work is residential in our wonderful home in Windsor Great Park. And if you've not been here, then I do hope that you will uh, come and visit us at some point. As you can see from the window behind me, even on a November evening, the sun shines here. We do venture further afield from time to time and had COVID not prevented us, we would be tonight um, at Good Enough College in London. We're very fortunate to have a very strong working relationship with Good Enough College in London and um, it's very good to welcome members of Good Enough here this evening. Most importantly now is for me to give way to the discussion. So it's my very great pleasure to hand over now to Baroness Usha Prasha, the Chair of Trustees at Cumberland Lodge, who's going to chair this evening's dialogue. So over to you, Usha.
1: Thank
2: you very much indeed, Ed. I am, would like to add my very warm welcome to all of you. The subject of the dialogue this evening is arts and the union. With Brexit looming, regional devolved powers demonstrating their assertiveness amidst the pandemic, renewed calls for Scottish independence or Irish unification, many people increasingly feel that the unity of the United Kingdom is either fragile or at stake. But whatever the future brings, Politically, we examine cultural bonds that unite the UK's four nations and people to people connections and the role that arts uh, might play in building social cohesion across the British Isles. And I would very much like to uh, welcome our panel this evening. And it's Brianna Bigardo, who is the executive director and uh, uh, of Creative Edinburgh, Scotland. Roisin McDonough, the Chief Executive of Arts Council of Northern Ireland. Lucy Cowan, Composer and Conductor, Goodenough College student in London, England. And Professor Sue Williams, who is a Course Director of Fine Art, Studio Site and Context at Swansea College of Art, University of Wales, Trinity St. David. So, I want to very much uh, thank you very much for actually joining us, and would like to now invite uh, Brianna to say a few words to us. So over to you Brianna.
1: Thank you very much Baroness Pashar, and also Dr Edmund Newell for inviting me here today. Um, And I'm I'm thrilled that we're having this discussion across the nations. I'm sure as many of you can hear, I I don't have a Scottish accent, I have an American accent. Um, But I've been been working in the arts and creative industries in Edinburgh for the last 10 years. Um, In terms of this question of how kind of the arts and creative industries and culture can bring kind of cultural cohesion, social cohesion across the, the four nations. Um, I'd like to take us on a little bit of a journey um, back to the times of the Scottish Enlightenment where many ideals and ideas around um, modern democracy and modern society were birthed. And, you know, we, we look back to those times of invention um, and many kind of uh, processes and systems that came out, of, came out of the UK and came out of Scotland and Edinburgh in particular. And I'd like to kind of introduce this notion of a second enlightenment that I see happening in in Scotland that has an impact across the UK um, and across the world. Uh, And this is a second enlightenment of purpose driven initiatives, businesses and social enterprise. Now, I mentioned this in the context of the arts and culture sector and culture as a whole. Because what's happening at the moment is an incredible intersection of data and data future. Is vying to be the data capital of Europe by 2030? Um, and innovations taking place in technology um, and taking place in um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and and where that's overlapping with arts and culture. I think, like many of the four nations, um, there's a there's a big kind of there's a big community based. Um, focus of the arts and culture, we think about the pandemic and the fact that so many people have turned to craft and to creativity as a means to get through the pandemic and to focus their attention on something else. Um, But more importantly, I think this notion of arts and culture um, is important to expand beyond that and to think of creativity itself. So the organization that I run, Creative Edinburgh, is one of the oldest creative networks in the UK. Um, There are two other creative networks in Scotland, or three actually, Creative Sterling, Creative Dundee, and Creative Inverclyde, that are completely community-based, membership-run and led organisations that support people across the creative sector and creative industries through pop-up events, legal advice, networking and opportunities for collaboration. And I think the fact that these creative networks exist and there are others, there's Creative Cardiff, there's um, the Creative Guild in Sheffields. There are a lot of these models across the UK and I think they really exemplify and model a way of working that promotes what I would see as the future of working and the future of arts and culture. We know that there are so many trends leading towards people by necessity, having to work remotely Um, being made redundant and potentially having to start their own businesses or register as self-employed and and start um, pursuing their creative practices more seriously to generate income. But I also think that this ethos of collaboration over competition, which creative networks promote, um, is something that's just in the fabric and the ways of working in Scotland. Um, When we think about, for example, the fact that 50% of the population in Scotland is is based in two major cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow, and the rest of the population is in rural parts of the country, the Western Isles, Orkney, Shetland, um, and a lot of the, the rest of the country, you know, is still really preserves and promotes the Gaelic language, traditional music, folk music. And that's really um, something that is needing to be preserved and supported where we have this intersection of innovation and technology. Um, I think there are a lot of trends and there are a lot of tensions as well, just within the arts and culture in a nation that's developing rapidly and is really pushing boundaries and pushing the ways of working in the arts and creative industries. When we look at brexit, which was mentioned and also Scottish independence, I think that something to be learned from Scotland's and ways of working um, the first is to say that our network and our members um, work across the UK work internationally and collaborate with with partners all over the world. There is never a sense of um, localism over internationalism or localism over nationalism but I think in terms of the way people relate and understand ways of working in the arts and culture and community projects are run uh, does start with the local I think some of that has to do with um, scarce resources has to do with remoteness and being located in rural rural parts of the country it also has to do with just this um, I think collective understanding of As I said before, it's about collaborating to share resources and ideas and and to kind of make art and make work across sectors. And I mean this when I talk about music and craft. There's an incredibly strong craft movement, design movement, and that's everything from graphic design, product design, and a massive, massive um, recent kind of history of service design as well being incredibly popular. And the way that service design also overlaps with, Um, city planning, architecture, um, and also conversations around how we should actually organize our society. So I think in terms of kind of the question around social cohesion and support and the union, I think there's a lot of polarization and there are a lot of questions around do policies that come from Westminster reflect The needs of people in Scotland. Uh, Some are devolved obviously to Scottish Parliament and those conversations and debates continue to happen but I think the way forward for us and the way that we can learn and the way that we can share knowledge is looking at the incredible number of social enterprises. So when I say social enterprise I'm talking about businesses that don't have shareholders that make a profit but reinvest that profit back into their social purpose which might be an environmental or a different type of purpose Um, but I do think that the way forward and a way for us to share knowledge and and kind of collaborate is looking at the intersections of purpose-driven initiatives, community-led initiatives and the real spirit of collaboration over competition which would enable all of us to work together more coherently and cohesively and support one another across the Union.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Brianna, for that very uh, insightful uh, comment. Um, I would like to turn to Roshin. Uh, So, Roshin, over to you. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to um, speak
3: um, this evening. Thank you, Baroness Prashar and Dr. Edmund Newell for the invitation. Um, I've been Chief Executive of the Arts Council for 20 years now in, in Northern Ireland and um, I've seen so much change occur which has been extraordinarily positive over that period. Clearly coming from Northern Ireland and I live and work in Belfast it is and has been a very unique place with its own unique set of problems and particularities and histories. And I just wanted to kind of quote something from um, one of our famous poets, John Hewitt, when we think about the whole concept of national identity or cultural identity. And I think for me, it it, it um, resonates, though there are other layers to this, when he said, Celt, Britain, Roman, Saxon, Dane and Scot, time and this island tied a crazy knot. Um, Now, Hewitt, I know, saw his identity as an Ulsterman, an Irishman, a British citizen, and a European citizen. And to which I would add that in the context of Northern Ireland, we have seen um, the welcome addition of many new um, incoming communities uh, for the first time in the last 10, 15 years, and particularly uh, from uh, uh, Eastern European countries, but more and more from across the globe. So I think increasingly we're becoming a much more diverse and welcomingly so uh, society. So the question of identities is really rich and um, layered and fluid and and changes. I'd also like to say that I'm a member of the British Irish Association uh, and I'm keen to broaden the perspective to include the Republic of Ireland in in our considerations this evening. Um, The Republic will be um, our nearest European neighbour post Brexit and we share with them much, not only in terms of of language, but common historical and cultural heritage as well as orientation um, in the year 2020. Having emerged from uh, uh, from conflict since 1994, I wanted just to make a, a couple of points. I think the arts have been hugely important in how they've contributed to building bridges within and between communities. Um, We've had experience of running various peacebuilding programmes through the arts and the value of those has been enormous. We've run programmes whereby we've um, invited communities to take down um, the paramilitary iconography, murals and trappings um, of the past and replace them with more positive public art to make them more welcoming and open to others. We've encouraged people to come together through a whole range of different programs. And I think that, um, you know, I I agree with Brianna, the arts know no boundaries, they are not constrained by by local um, or regional or national or or, or any other form of um, um, identities. They are are, um, places where we can meet and we can dialogue and we can talk one, one with the other in a way that is not necessarily hostile or threatening. And certainly that's been our experience in all the work that we've been doing in local communities, building better social cohesion uh, and inter-community dialogue. Um, The question as to whether um, or not um, we um, can, I suppose, contribute further to building social cohesion community um, exchange um, and uh, make our contribution to the economy that uh, Brianna has spoken so eloquently about in terms of the creative industries and recognising creative creativity as an essential aspect of our human beingness, so to speak, an essential element and component of who we are, not something that we just do um, to, for a, an instrumental purpose, so it can have that, but it is fundamental to the nature of our human being and to be in society. And um, uh, it has not been eradicated in any way um, by... It springs back every time there is violence or there is a war. What we do get is people expressing their fundamental impulse to show themselves as human beings across the world and to reach out to others and to express their cultural diversity and their rich heritage. And that's something that we have to absolutely co-treasure. In terms of thinking about these islands and how culture is the byword for which we are known and how we exchange each other's arts and culture and creativity. um, There are numerous examples of that being done institutionally. We have created um, cross-border touring programs with our colleagues um, in in the arts councils on these islands, which enable us to show the best to each other of our respective uh, rich arts arts and cultural practices across a whole diverse range of of art forms. That's really important. And I hope we don't lose that um, when we um, leave the European Union. But as we all keep saying, We are only leaving the European Union, we are not leaving Europe, we're not leaving the rest of the world. We will continue to collaborate um, as arts councils uh, and indeed with our colleagues um, in the British Council. So I think it's really important to to remember that, that there is a lot that is already happening in terms of international collaboration uh, and uh, intercountry inter- collaboration on these islands, which I think stands us in very good stead. I'll pause there.
2: Thank you very much indeed, and thank you for bringing in the Republic of Ireland perspective too. I think that's that's a very important one, Roshine. Uh, I'd now like to ask Lucy to say a few words uh, by way of introduction. Lucy.
4: Thank you. Yes, um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a real honour and thank you very much for this opportunity and on behalf of Good Enough College as well, where we're all supposed to be this evening. Um it's it's um I'm sure there's lots of people from Good Enough watching too. It's a really um, it feels like a really significant time, day one of the second lockdown to be discussing um these incredibly important questions. And so thank you. Um I, I come I'm a musician, but I I come from a languages background, my undergrad degree. Um, I studied Arabic and Spanish and I also have German and French so I grew up um, very much treasuring uh, languages and, and culture and, um, and I uh, have, have moved on now to, um, to, to, to make music the centre of what I do and of course music as we all know is uh, it's a, a language for everyone it's an international language and so with that in mind Brexit and this conversation today and how the pandemic has also contributed is um, something for me, it feels, uh, it, I mean, it's very troubling and, and, and challenging times. And already um with, from the two speakers we've just heard from, there's 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 lots of courage. And I'd just like to take a moment to share, this is very famous, you'll all know it, but I think it's uh, brilliant for today and, and what we're all talking about. Um, Henri Matisse, the artist says, creativity takes courage and it really does because it, in these in these hard times um wh- what else is going to save us other than our ideas our, our questions our, our conversations and um our, our thoughts about how to move forward and and that all of that i think is uh, is is what creativity is and working with orchestras and, and and smaller ensembles of all different ages young and old uh amateur and professional i see the same thing um happening which is that there's lots of um there's lots of uh, anxiety around what's happening but there's also lots of courage and for me that's something I would like to keep coming back to while we're having these conversations I think um for me that's that's a really important um thing to keep to keep in mind now of course Brexit it brings all brings the whole wealth of economic um uh considerations um that um I think 59% of all international activity in the English arts sector um, is made up from the EU and other significant, um, we can we can talk about those quotes all, all evening, but, um, and statistics. But for me, um, it's, this, it's this concept, it's this feeling that we're becoming more of an island, that we're becoming more isolated from each other, both within the union and then uh, facing the rest of the world. And so for me, the, the important thing to keep in mind is, and at the heart of this conversation is really our call the art the artistic community's call um for these negotiations the brexit negotiations to prioritize the ongoing ease of movement for artists and creative professionals that we that we that we say together um in in these times and uh, how do we do that well that's uh, maybe I'll, I'll pause on that and, and bring some ideas on that in, in, in later in, in, the, in the session. But keeping that in mind and, and the fact that we, we, we must keep the, these, these, um, the movement of our community fluid, that 21% of British orchestra members come from the EU. Um, these are important relationships. The, the relationship we have with Creative Europe, the one we mentioned earlier with the British Council and all the work they're doing to maintain our relationships in the international field despite what's happening. Um, but it's not... Um, I would also just like to say it's also um, it's not all to be troubled and anxious about because of course the, these challenging times uh, mean that we have we are forced to, we really are forced to to reflect on on lots of questions. so how we value Europe, how we're going to access talent, how we're going to bridge um divisions. It's really an opportunity for us all, individuals and in our nations and for and bigger geographic entities to consider our identity and to think about how we present ourselves and our identity in an authentic way uh, to the rest of the world. Um, And so, yeah, I'll I'll finish there for now. Um, I'm aware of time. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. uh, There's there's a great deal in what you said. There's a lot more to kind of discuss. Um, Before we move on to discussion, I'd just like to uh, invite Sue to make her contribution.
5: Uh, so over to you, Sue. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Um, and thank you very much, Baroness Pressure and Dr. Edward Newell, for inviting me along. Um I it, it's quite strange to be asked to be um to be here on behalf of uh of Wales because I see myself as um bigger than Wales, bigger than England, bigger than you know, just I feel myself to be part of the world. Um, In terms of my background, I would probably be best to just give you an idea of where I come from. I was brought up in the Middle East. Um, My father had been in the Air Force. My father then went into the Church of England, and now he's a Catholic priest. So my journey on many levels has been challenging, interesting, but certainly sort of given me a huge amount of um, food and, and food for thought. And... When I moved to Wales, I actually came to college in Wales and Wales was a very um, progressive city. It had an incredible amount of activity, art activity. I felt I'd I'd actually arrived home. So I felt incredibly comfortable. And after 34 homes in my whole entire life, Cardiff seemed to be the place to settle for a while. Um, But having said that, It's been a long time. It's been longer than maybe 40 years. But anyway, um, through my if I can actually explain, I'm going to talk as a practitioner first, because for me, the actual practice of being a fine artist or being a visual artist is very, very important to me. And regardless of where I live, I think it's important to be able to produce work, to be free to do the work and to have the support of the city, country that you live in. And I can only say on behalf of Wales, I have had the most incredible support from Wales. And I often look back on my sort of experience um, to date, and I wonder whether I would have had the same support had I been living in England. And this has always been an issue for me because I obviously come originally from Cornwall. So my background is very multicultural. I, I was... Um, I, I couldn't differentiate between somebody living in England, somebody living in Wales or Ireland. So to be invited to talk about it was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, a bit of a rude awakening for me because I suddenly recognized that actually we are living in strange times. And when I look back on my, journey I mean there was Artist Monday there was um, exhibitions over in Belfast in the um, Golden Thread Gallery last year I had the Bast a number of years before so I've really had a very rich experience I've traveled and toured in Africa um, China I have been absolutely blessed with a life as an artist and I'm not going to just point the finger at COVID because I don't think we can just blame COVID. But I think my concern is that the the sort of Westminster's viewpoint on the arts is slightly disturbing and worrying. And I really want as Wales, for me, I feel very passionate having lived in Wales this long. I really would like to see Wales a little bit like Scotland, a little bit independent and having it so it has an incredible voice in Wales but for some reason it's very quiet it's very hushed and it's not heard so for me it's um there is an issue but then going to the positive as a lecturer um and also having the experience of Artist Mundi which was an incredible experience and the the ripple effect from Artist Mundi has stayed with me continues with me and it's it's a journey that I would never, you know, I'd wish for everybody, every artist I know. Um, but as a, lect- as a lecturer and a, run- and a director of a course, one of the most passionate things for me is that students come from all over the world. We've got more international students this year than we've ever had, which is a huge, to me, is just fantastic, considering the COVID and the pressures that the country are under. Um, we have a number of them from all parts of um, of Europe but we also have double the intake this year than we had last year and that to me says a huge it says something very loud to me it says that people are looking for creativity people are looking for the arts people are wanting something different and as a course director I I create and implement a lot of technological support because I believe that the future is looking towards that. But I also strongly believe in connecting to the outside world because my world is bigger than Wales. So, in terms of teaching students, I bring in, I'm trustee of the of Access Web. And um, I'm not sure if any of you know, I'm sure you all know that, but it's the platform for the visual arts. And with collaboration with access web we have created this fantastic fourth year bubble which enables the third years to embrace another year as support when they leave now that is not in wales that's up in england so for me that it's not a question i i look outside of wales i look outside of england and i i in terms of the question um I would like to see a lot more support in the regions in terms of of, of financial support. Um, I would like to see it a lot on a more equal footing. Sorry, fireworks. Um, I would like to see an equal footing, uh, but I would also sort of say that the students that we have today have got an incredible vision way beyond England, UK. They see the world as their oyster. They want it and they're passionate. And I want to be able to provide that for them as the best way I can. Um, So I'm not quite sure if I've answered the question, but I really do fight for sort of equality. I fight for um, students' rights and I fight for their voices because we are living in times where voices tend to be a little bit suppressed. And... I allow the students to have their voice. And through that, they have learnt to become, I hope, all the ones I've seen so far, have learnt to become excellent practitioners with a huge um, professional sort of understanding of what is accepted and what is expected of them. And that is to have a voice in the world that we're living in and a very powerful voice. So for me, the arts should be supported. Um, I, for one... Um, do not see the difference between Scotland, Wales, Ireland, or England. But when it actually comes to a voice, I think we all have our own individual voices that have to be heard and need to be respected in the bigger scheme of things.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Sue, coming from a, sort of a personal perspective, someone inter- internationally and coming to a local level. Now, before I get into our uh, uh, questions and, and discussion with the panel, What I'd like to say is that throughout the dialogue, we would like to invite you, the audience, to submit your questions. And to do so, you can use the question and answer function if you're watching live on Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. Uh, We're also tweeting as we go on and we would like to hear your views and questions. And you can do so by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge, or using the hashtag #CLDialogue. So, as you listen to the discussion, by all means, you know, please send us your questions because there'll be time at the end, uh, for about half an hour, for, for us to uh, answer your questions as well. So, we've had some very interesting, and in my view, very uplifting presentations. Uh, about how positive um, the arts really are. And I do like your comment about Matisse and courage and creativity. And I, and I think that's extremely important. But I was also interested to hear from Vienna about the question of you know, the purpose, the social enterprise, and how the polarization actually is being handled. And again, from Roshin, about the fact that you know creativity is about us as human beings. So the question that I'd like to really uh, ask all of you is that in your view, what are the most sort of divisive factors across the four nations? And how can the arts be used to build cohesion and overcome these differences? So who'd like to respond to that?
4: Lucy, do you want to come in? Yeah, Yeah. do you mind repeating? I just had a slight... Um, Sorry.
2: said, in your view, what are the most divisive factors across the four nations? Mm. How can the arts be used to build cohesion and overcome these differences?
4: Uh, I think for me, um, it was really interesting uh, what Sue said, actually, when she was introducing herself about how she feels a bit strange to be here on behalf of... um, Wales uh, because she thinks about herself as being part of a, a bigger world and I, I have to say I completely that completely chimes for me and resonates because um it's, it's just very funny seeing your name um hyphen England and um uh as if I'm part of the football team and I was never any good at football um so I I, I don't know I find that question I find that question challenging because I don't think in that way I don't I don't and I, I studied in Edinburgh I was living in Edinburgh for four years um uh, very exposed to um, a lot of the conversation around Scotland and the independence. So, but I, I don't, I don't feel uh, this might not be very helpful as a starting point. I, I apologize, but I don't feel a kind of um, I don't feel attracted to the divisions. I, I feel like I, I feel very much um, part of a union of four of four countries together as one. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I the, the, and um, a little bit related to what I was saying earlier about music being an international language. Again, uh, I, don't, I don't make those distinctions in that way when I speak to someone from Scotland or from Wales or from Ireland. Um, and here at Good Enough College, we, I, I mean, every, every other person you meet, f- we're all from different countries. It's, it's, uh, so it's a, yeah, I'm interested to see what the others might say about this. Um, so I appreciate I'm coming yeah. from quite an extreme point of view. I, I'd like
2: to re on that because I think, you know, you use the word polarization. It'd be interesting if you can elaborate a little bit on that.
1: So, you know, th- this is difficult, uh, Baroness Bashar, because I think the question is how honest do you want me to be about this question? <laughs> I wanted to be very
2: honest because okay. at
1: some we like honest dialogue. Okay, okay, <laughs> because I would be doing the Scottish people a disservice if I didn't say what I'm about to say. Um, you know, I'm American, I've been in, Ed- in Edinburgh for 10 years. My family lives across three continents. My mother was a diplomat and Um, You know, I'm from a nation that is very divided, that is waiting for its election results as we speak. Now, when I look at what's happening in the UK and when I look at the conversations happening in Scotland and that have been happening for the last 10 years, um, you know, there is a difference and there is a division and that division is very real and it's a historical one. You know, there's no way that I can try and encapsulate why these divisions exist without going back about 600 years in history. And there is a real sense of oppression and a real sense of misunderstanding and a real sense of resources not being distributed in a fair way. Mm -hmm. And a real sense of, um, you know, misunderstanding, but a lack of interest in being understood. Mm -hmm. And I think that this genuinely comes from what I'll I'll compare it to the US for for um, some lightness. But I think there's an arrogance that we need to address as a nation for us to move forward. And when I speak to that arrogance, I mean an arrogance in terms of, um, yeah, a ways of working and ways of approaching things. Because when I go back to the collaboration over competition that I mentioned earlier, when I'm down south and doing work in London or in England or um, in other parts south of the border, um. I notice an immediate difference in the way that I'm treated and the way that my work is viewed. And also in the way that the work is viewed um, in Scotland as a whole. I know that, you know, Edinburgh is a festival city and there's so many things, great things that come out of the city and that have come out of this nation. And I don't think that anyone wants divisions, but I think the way to address this is people feeling oppressed for whatever reason for coming from marginalized groups or coming from marginalized parts of the country Um, need need that platform to express. And I think that the way to address that is actually through artistic expression. Mm -hmm. It's artists throughout society that have forced us to reflect, to have difficult conversations, to reflect on the way our societies are organized. And it's artists that have been heavily political and some of the biggest disruptors um, in, in history. And I think it's less about divisive politics and I think it's more about divisive times that. There are a lot of issues that have gone really unaddressed for an incredibly long time. And I think that the structures in place are being challenged and are changing. I don't think that has to mean permanent division, and I don't think that has to mean um, permanent polarization. And technology has a lot to do with this, algorithms, the way that um, information is being fed to us, echo chambers, is a lot that's contributing to this across the world, it's not just in the UK. But I actually think if we're gonna heal and we're gonna move forward, it's really important for us to have some really direct and tough conversations. I think colleagues from other nations that have gone through that peace building work will be able to f- reflect on this in a different way and bring different perspectives. But you know, I would be doing us a disservice this evening if I didn't say that you know those divisions exist for, for a reason. But I do think that it takes addressing these challenges head on and being open to honest conversation and dialogue. Um, and finding ways of working past that um, it's possible and it's necessary and it's something we all want to work towards but we have to acknowledge the history that's there
2: before I uh, ask Roshin to come in I'd like to ask you a question here I I accept what you're saying but are there examples of where there has been a challenge because in a way us can be very much used in a General way to have difficult questions. You know that's what the vehicle of arts, 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 arts can be used for. Are there examples where you've
1: seen that happen successfully? There are many, and I think it would be difficult to identify one. Um, we know that you know the festivals, the summer festivals that take place in Edinburgh are a beautiful example of. Um, openness, collaboration, the sharing of ideas across the UK and across the world. So um, I think Scotland's a very welcoming nation. Um, And I think that there are so many community projects, um, Arts Council Projects, Creative Scotland was mentioned in terms of exchanges, look at the Core um, Leadership Fellowship, Uh, So many examples and opportunities. So this happens on a daily basis. So I would say that these collaborations are constant. There are no specific examples for me to highlight. Um, But alongside that, you know, is everything I mentioned. I think that, you know, both can exist at the same time.
2: Thank you for that. Loshin, do you have any Um, comments
3: on that? Yes, I I do. Um, I think it would be fair to say, and has been widely observed as such, that the whole issue um, of Brexit has set a lot of demons running um, in this island, both north and south, and indeed um, has an impact and resonance across Europe. And we all watch what's happening um, uh, with the um, move towards the potential for Scottish Um, independence as a consequence of that. I have to say, um, I think it has been a very divisive um, issue. It is still omnipresent. We have a situation, as you will know, on the island of Ireland, we have a border which is extraordinarily porous. People travel across it daily, uh, both for work and for living and for trade. And the risk of rupturing those, that connective tissue of relationships that have been built up, uh, particularly in the context of the Belfast and Good Friday Agreement is something I think that we have to be very mindful of and to be very sensitive to. In terms of the role that the arts play, it is critical that those boundaries and those borders that will be imposed should be as minimal as possible And that our artists and cultural organisations and individuals who are involved in creativity can continue to travel freely and to have that exchange, uh, that vital exchange um, of ideas and collaboration and dialogue as already has been said. So I think when we think about the, which is why I raised the issue of the island of Ireland and maintaining that door into Europe through our counterparts um, in the Republic with whom we've got very strong relationships um, in terms of um, um, arts and culture is is so essential. Anything that runs the risk of breaking that, I think is uh, is a very sad and very sorry, sorry day. In terms of the issue of identity, what we have seen is the growth of national identities, some of which I don't think have been terribly helpful. Um, in terms of the rise potentially of the rise of English nationalism and that, that has you know really divided communities both north and south and along class lines uh, and indeed along cultural identity lines right across um, right across England in particular and the, um, the, the the unfolding of that and the inability to deal with that fundamentally and to heal Um, those divisions, which are so palpable, um, I think, is a source of regret. However, I do think, uh, as we've all said here, that the arts and what it means to people um, and how we reach out one to the other and have those difficult conversations is so essential and any undermining um, of support for arts and culture to do that and to bring further clarity and to explicate the very profound contradictions and divisions that there are. It's not to shy away from them, it's to try and see if we can have another road into the conversation that makes sense of that and is respectful and encourages the dialogue that we need. We need more of that rather than less of it. Mm -hmm. I happen to come from a part of the world which is the poorest funding ever in the history of these islands for arts and culture. One positive thing um, to say is that the Barnett consequentials money that came as a result of COVID, we had a big debate about where they should go. And actually they have all gone to arts and culture and heritage. Now that's a first for us um, in a a mandatory coalition um, with people who have very different views um, uh, politically on issues such as Brexit, identity, nationalism. Uh, And the fact that we, managed, and I say we collectively, our wonderful artists and arts and cultural sector managed to achieve that is a really important step forward because for the first time people got what the arts and uh, the role that arts and culture play and their contribution to keeping us all together, body and soul and our mental health under this pandemic and a universal language of creativity and engagement speaking one to the other without any divisions. That was just wonderful as far as I'm concerned.
2: Could I ask you a similar question? Because in Northern Ireland you've had an enormous experience in terms of building communities, you know, you know, for falling divisions. Are there examples that you can point to in, in Ireland where you've actually used arts and culture to kind of bring communities together?
3: Well I, I think, you know, before the pandemic, I mean yes, we we we're in a fortunate position enough to create um, uh, uh, arts and cultural spaces in, fair, in very, in very, very, dis- sorry, that's my granddaughter just there now, your uh, pardon. We've been fortunate enough to build up a network um, of arts and cultural activity and organisations within local communities. I think we have a strong tradition um, in Northern Ireland of a community development approach to engagement in the arts, as well as obviously wonderful artists and or, or centres of excellence as well. And I think that's been partly a function of when politics and political agreement had abdicated um, our country for so long, people who involved in community and voluntary activity and social enterprise entered a space uh, where they picked up um, that abdication uh, and, uh, and um, Engaged not only within their communities but between their communities, lots of women's organisations, grassroots organisations, um, have filled that chasm, and they've done it through the arts. We have we have a we have wonderful theatres, we have wonderful um, you know performing arts organisations that just naturally, normally, gracefully uh, bridge. Uh, what others would see as a huge divide, and don't even think about it, it's part of their DNA, it's how they orient- orientate themselves in the world. And so we're blessed, I think, uh, with examples of huge good practice. And I think when the pandemic came and organisations shut, were forced to shut down, what we had in local communities were people who were extraordinarily adaptive. So maybe the, the cultural centre was closed, maybe the arts venue couldn't function but what they did was they distributed food parcels and arts pack art packs into distressed families. So you know we have such good examples um, of arts um, engagement at community level, which I think we're very proud of here in Northern Ireland. Thank you, that.
2: Sue.
5: Do you have any comments? Um, yes, I. I'm well. The two speakers just before me, I think, have said a great deal of of what I feel. Um, but in terms of um, my, well, for me as an artist and also as an educator, one of my biggest passions is to, keep, is to keep the community of the arts in every city possible. While we've got the the groups of communities, we've got a better chance of surviving whatever's happening in the society today. Um, my biggest concern if, at the moment is maybe how education has been shrunk and that for me is a very big concern um, there's a lot of squeezing going on and, and it's nobody's fault other than the powers that be who do not understand that the arts through school and, edu- and higher education are actually the most important aspects of children's upbringing, um, the future of our societies, so that it's a very relevant and important aspect and I've, I'm very, very concerned about that. I, I'll be honest with you. Um, I feel it's like a, a fire that we're constantly trying to keep away from us in Wales. And I, it's a, it's a tragedy when Wales, like any other region, has a very, very um, poignant voices within their own cultures or within their own societies, within their own communities. I mean, where I live or work in Swansea, the students stay. They very rarely leave Wales. And I think that says a great deal about the quality of life and the experiences of an artist within Wales. They're very, very passionate about staying with Wales. So I think in terms of divisive um, behaviour or actions, I do think it's about the arts as um, has been said with the arts and the artists have to use their voices and they have to make them heard and it has to be loud and clear to make to move forward to make a better society to actually live in and work in that's how i feel yes
2: good did you wanted to come back because you said you want to hear others before you respond is anything you wish to add before i ask my
4: next question um, only that it's it's just fascinating to hear those different perspectives, and um, I'm already kind of revisiting what I've said, especially from actually what Brianna was talking about, because I think um, I think it can be quite an easy thing to say, oh, we don't see um, certain barriers or divisions. If um, I mean, I'm, I'm living a 20-minute cycle from Westminster right now, <laughs> so um, I mean, it's 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 a very. Um, um, I think it's always important to be mindful of your perspective in. And the fact that you're always coming, we can't help it, can we? But we're always coming from a bias of some sort, as a, 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 a small, smaller tunnel vision of some sort. So it's really fascinating to hear actually what, what you said, Brianna, in particular there. Good.
2: Uh, before I turn to the audience, there's one question which I'd like to ask all of you, really, is that what's been coming through the discussion so far is how crucial and critical the arts really are and how it doesn't see any boundaries. And things that we can do both in terms of purpose, you know, creative linkages and all of that. But I think we all know that we are going through a pretty difficult period. You know, as I said, you know, there's assertiveness on independence, you know, the pandemic, and of course, growth in, in, in kind of nationalism. But if we want to really uh, make sure that arts are used for a very positive purpose in terms of dealing with some of the old standing divisions and actually building. National identity, but also international cohesion and local cohesion. What are the things you'd like to see happen? Because you know, some of you have hinted on actually more resources, freedom of movement, and all and so on. But if, let's say, you were given a clean slate, you know, what would be high on your agenda on the things you'd like to see happen, so to make sure that we can actually use the arts in a very positive way? Um, So. I'll go to Brianna you, I can see you shaking
1: your head, so I'd like to go to you first. I'll give all of the other (laughs) panellists a moment to think about that. Um, Yes, the first thing that I I think of and that I say regularly uh, when I'm speaking on any platform over these last couple of months is, I really want to challenge people positively to think about artists as essential workers. Now, I'm not in any way making the statement that our frontline workers, our nurses, the NHS carers and people in really critical roles in our society are not or are more or less important. I just want to challenge everyone to think that without artists and without creative people, we wouldn't have the laptops that we're watching this this, um, panel on. We wouldn't have clothing, we wouldn't have buildings, schools, any materials that we use. And I think that actually we take for granted so many artists and creative people in our society. Art's not all about utility, of course not, but just this notion that actually we need art and we need creativity to survive. And I think um, a panelist referred to this creativity as being inherently human. Yes, you know, we're, we're human because we create and we're able to invent things and make things and make them come into being in ways that actually other species are not able. Um, I think that's really important. And I also think that when we think about recovery, because we're having a lot of discussions at the moment um, in Scotland around recovery and also what this might mean for the rest of the UK and how we can contribute to that. And there's so much talk of a well-being economy. There's so much talk of technology and data and tech uh, helping us recover from Covid. Um, But there's not enough that's lent to the impacts of culture. Culture is likened to supporting our health and well-being. But still, I think too often it's seen as a hobby, as an add-on, as something nice to do. And I, I would challenge us to look at it as essential and to treat it that way and to fund it that way, which means also embedding art and creativity in schools. And the last thing I'll say very quickly about this, one of my heroes, Sir Ken Robinson, passed away this summer. And Sir Ken spoke about uh, schools killing creativity and the need for us to encourage divergent thinking, thinking out of the box, out of parameters, thinking resourcefully, thinking creatively, um, how that fundamentally is missing from our curriculum and our education system. And if we're going to solve the problems that we were faced with, which includes the climate crisis and so many other challenges, many of which we're discussing this evening, we need a world filled with creative thinkers, divergent thinking, creativity, that is really given the credence and the status and the respect that it deserves. So my one thing would be treating creativity and arts as essential.
2: Good. Who'd like to go next on that one? I think that's a very interesting perspective. So, can I request yes. a little bit more brief? Because by, by seven o'clock, I want to get to the audience questions as well. Okay. So.
5: So very quickly, um, as a course director, I was given the the, uh, decision to make whether we go online to teach or whether we go into the studios and work with the students face to face. And my colleague and myself decided that we were going to do face to face. And when we were asked about it, I said, well, they need their studios. They need an outlet. They need to be able to accomplish something of benefit to themselves on the mental health level, on physical involvement in their practice. So I'm of the same as um, Brianna. I really do feel that education is paramount. Okay,
2: thank you very much indeed. Rosheen and then Lucy. Rosheen. Two
3: points. I think what this pandemic has done is thrown up into the air the whole issue about what we value um as much as who we value mm. uh, and I would like to see that um debated further I completely agree artists and creative practitioners are as an essential part mm. of the workforce as anybody else they just have a different role and function um and speaking to the piece about education um I, you would expect me to agree and I do. One of my concerns is that um, currently, given the crisis that we're facing, is that many young people who are maybe 14 or 15 years of age may not choose to become a creative practitioner or an artist. Seeing how precarious um, life is as an artist and a creative practitioner, the pandemic has um, shown particularly acutely here, but I'm sure elsewhere similarly, that the precariousness of the life of an artist and having to multitask and multi-job in order to be able to craft a living to earn a crust um, has just been wiped out. Freelancers have had their income just it's just vanished overnight. And I think that makes it difficult for people who want to pursue a a career. I think of the university students who are maybe coming out from your course or indeed other courses um, in fine arts across these islands and thinking how on earth are they going to be able to get into gainful employment so that you can actually continue to plow their incredible creative practice um, unless we give them the support infrastructure and structures and resources to enable them to do that because we run the risk of hemorrhaging some of the most creative and inventive people that our society produces unless we recognize their essential worth and put in place uh, financial systems to help them.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Lucy?
4: I, I would just add to that briefly that it's uh, I think probably probably the saddest um, the saddest thing I've found about this, this pandemic and, and the effects of it is the, uh, the I mean, we've always had <clears throat> inequality, but it's it's just uh, pushed it and made it even more um, clear. And I see that at most stark at the way in which, um, uh, Roshima's talking about 14 and 15 year olds, incredibly important age for when you're starting perhaps to maybe mm-hmm. lean towards preferred subjects. Um, uh, you know, the DCSE system, we're kind of forced to make those decisions quite early, um, compared to our European countries where it's not so so we don't get siloed so much so early. Um and it's absolutely true what she's saying, that the that that with this precarious future, as Rosie put it, it's 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 becoming harder and harder for 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 young people to have that confidence. And especially the fact, and, and we're gonna see that especially, I think, with um the added um Impact that the pandemic is going to have on the mobility of those students, um, and, you know, the equipment they have at home, um, the amount of attention they're going to get at home. It's 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 creating such a divide, um, and 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 it's so important that we look at that um, because. These, these, the Brexit and the pandemic and everything else that's going on, it's the young people that it's going to affect the most. Um, it's and 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 it's also the young people who are who can who can bring the energy and the resilience and the creativity that we need at this time.
2: Thank you very much indeed. I think I've had my fair share of questions. Uh, I'm going to now open the questions to the audience. Uh, are there any questions from the audience? I don't see any on the screen.
1: There, there are a couple that have just popped up in the Q&A box. Um,
2: right, um, there is one from Emily. Oh, it's gone. I can't see any questions.
1: Ernest Pressure, would it be useful for me to read some of them or what would if be can, helpful? I
2: can't see on my screen. Would you mind reading them for me, please? Uh,
1: there are 12, so I'll read the first two. <laughs> Uh, The first is, um, as a creative leader, I see myself within the context of a global multicultural family, a European family, a British family, a Welsh family. Each of these identities have their uniqueness. I'm passionate about my identity and I'm interested in how this localized identity is by itself universal, because ultimately the idea of relationships and experience transcends national identity. How do divisive politics, that fail to recognize the unique identities of communities impact? So first question, and the second, which is shorter is-
2: Can we deal with the first question? Because it's it's a long question. Uh, I'm sorry, I I don't seem to see the question on my screen here. So uh, who'd like to answer that? Would you like to answer that as well, as, as, as you've read the question? Then we can start with you.
1: I will answer it briefly and then pass on to my other panelists. Um, I think that on the question of how do divisive politics fail to recognize the uniqueness of identities and communities, um, I think that we, it's a tough one. You know, I, I really feel that it's not up to us how people identify And obviously, you know, this person that's asked this question identifies with many identities, I do as well. I think that, you know, As I said earlier, I I think it's less the divisive politics and it's more the division of of times, the current times and and, um, the unearthing of of long-held issues um, that I really won't name. I think there are plenty that we can be aware of. And actually, I think that, you know, we need to celebrate difference more. I think there's a real fear of that at times. I I hear it a lot um, in Britain a lot in Scotland because it's not as culturally and ethnically diverse, the sense that talking about difference and celebrating it will create division. I don't think it will. I actually think creating space for people to celebrate and explore their multiple identities and how they intersect um, allows for that and allows for less fear. I think the division and divisiveness comes from fear um, and not really knowing how to really create space for for celebrating the difference, but I'll leave it there so my other uh, colleagues can answer.
2: I
3: I would say there are many communities, sorry, I was just going to say I think there are are many communities and communities of interest. I mean, one of the amazing things um, that's happened in Belfast over the last 10, 15 years has been how uh, the Gay Pride Festival has absolutely taken the city uh, by storm and And I suppose it's a way of um, younger people whose voices um, uh, and whose sexual identity and preferences have not been heard and have been, in fact, suppressed um, in the context of a very um, atavistic um, sense of uh, an atavistic Northern Ireland um, has suddenly exploded onto the scene in a very, very positive way and has united um, uh, that community and the broader community behind it and its celebration of who it is. I just think that's been really uplifting. So I would say that you know identities are, are 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 multiple, and that the whole issue of gender and sexuality is 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 becoming increasingly foregrounded in the world in which we live, as well as sense of national identities and can be a very strong unifying force. Mm.
5: Anybody else? Sue or Lucy? Yes. Um, I was just going to answer it in as much that. Um, Having been in Wales for probably about 40 years now living, um, I feel quite privileged living in such a beautiful and very sort of rich, cultured environment. Um, and I do in many ways, because of the political climate that we're living in, there's a part of me that would love Wales to be independent in order to be part of Europe. And I think the loss and the fear of being detached from Europe is what most people fear in wales and particularly myself and but having said that i know that through the arts we will still continue spreading our wings and going further afield and um so i do think that generally we all have a critical voice and we all we all know we have to sort of fight for the corner fight our own corners but at the same time i think we genuinely we're all looking for a bigger world and a more united world.
4: Okay, Lucy. I would just—it um, kind of goes to—it's similar for um, to me. This this important question: this balance between um, celebrating cultural identity uh, on all levels, on localized levels, like Brianna's saying, and having and being aware of that, and not um, hiding it and or, or um, compromising on it, but also. Um, a little bit like Sue saying, uh, this idea that um, we don't want to be isolating, we want to still stay together. I think it's a tricky, tricky balance.
2: Okay. There's a question from Amri Gould who says, do participants feel that the kinds of polarization and unequal treatment Brianna talked about from the Scottish perspective also apply to the northern regions of England? And possibly other regions, some distance from Westminster. Has there been any progress in moving away from the very heavy concentration of the UK culture and life in London? Lucy, do you, what, what do you feel about that?
4: I'm just trying to find that question so I can reread it. Where is it on yeah, the Q and
2: A? Do you? It says, "Do participants feel that the kinds of polarization?" And unequal treatment, Brianna talked about from the Scottish perspective, also applied to the northern regions of England and possibly other regions some distance from Westminster. Has there been any progress in moving away from the very heavy concentration of UK cultural life
4: in London? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? And. Um, uh, I have to say I'm I'm from Portsmouth originally, so I'm south. Um, and I spent my my both my parents were born in London. My most of my family are from London. I'm living in London now. It's where I spent most of my life. Um, however, I did um I did go up north for the lockdown, uh, and I was living in um, North Yorkshire, and it was it was a really important experience because I did sense actually um in in the short while I was there um. That there, that that that. I mean, this this question's brilliant because it's absolutely true. I think, but I have a limited insight that the northern regions of England um, very much are being uh, alienated from, you know, London down um, kind of um, considerations and speak. I I would say, from my limited insight, that 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 rings true. Okay.
2: How does it feel like? We're from Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland.
5: Uh, I, well, I would agree that in terms of Wales, we are short-changed, most definitely, regarding um, sort of the region and the sort of feeling that we are being left out. We're not able to progress as quickly and as fast due to the concentration of uh, London-centric. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I would also say that in the it, you know, it does apply to the north, northern regions of England. I'm on the board and governing body of the University of York. Um, I spend a lot of time in, in Newcastle and other parts of, of the north of England. And I, I find whenever I'm in the north of England, I, feel, I feel, feel very comfortable. I feel at home. I feel the way of looking at things and approaching the world um, is, is similar in some ways. And I think I've always found speaking to colleagues... Uh, that there is a sense of um, yeah being a bit shortchanged, but that said, I, you know, London isn't everything, and there's so many examples as we, as we're sharing um, of cultural life being concentrated outside of London. And you know, the Festival of Ideas in New York is a great example. Um, there's so many examples of, of work that's happening across the UK. So I, I think that in terms of the concentration of cultural life, I think sometimes. Um, that are in the suburbs or outside of London, you know, really struggle with access to, to London to kind of engage with culture. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the Midlands or when it comes to the north of England, you know, there's so many great institutions and organizations, but there is a similar feeling I found from from colleagues there. Okay.
2: Lashin, do you perspective from Northern Ireland?
3: Well, I mean, I think for many, we live with a historical legacy of not having had um, a government or having had a government that has come and gone and now, thank goodness, is up and running. So the devolved administrations are able to take their own decisions in relation to support for arts and culture. We have fared, I would say, not very well up until now, as I said earlier. We have been the worst funded consistently for decades um, amongst our our comparable counterparts uh, in these islands. And my hope is that that now will change. As democracy matures, we hope that people will arrive at better, more rounded decisions and appreciation of what arts and culture contribute. Mm.
2: Thank you. I have another question here from Rachel Tuff, who's a Cumberland Lodge scholar, and she says, how can we make the case for arts funding to be maintained during the post-COVID financial downturn, given that they will be so important in helping UK overcome the trauma and loss of the pandemic? That's a very tough question. Now, how do we actually make a case for funding to be maintained? Um, I see a hand written by Brenna. Would you like to answer that?
1: Yes. Um, I think the answer is through partnership working, um, working with, you know, health and social care partnerships, working with the NHS, working in communities, um, working with with people of marginalized groups in isolation, older people, people that are disabled. I think that actually so much great work is already happening across the country, across the UK, that's There's enough to prove actually why the arts are so fundamental to recovering from all of this grief, trauma and loss. Obviously, there are other priorities and, you know, the UK government is prioritizing economic recovery, maybe in a literal way. Um, but I think actually that by, by demonstrating the ways that this is, has an impact through partnership working and, and by coming together to kind of share that knowledge and those examples is how we can make the case and we are continuing to make the case at all levels for why funding is important. Um, there have been some incredible emergency funding packages in Scotland. We've received 97 million, which is one of the biggest chunks of arts funding that's been available at any given time in a long time. So I think that's being further recognised, but I think that actually we need to do a good job with tracking, reporting, and, and sharing that knowledge. That, that, that's
2: a, 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 a very good perspective.
5: So, do you want to add anything? Uh, sorry, I didn't quite um, hear you. What you said then for me? Okay. Um, I I've, I feel that we can. Um, maintain the sort of financial downturn as long as the again we come back to the education of communities knowing that we can actually support each other whether it be educational or artistic community um, and pull together in terms of local areas but also as well um, I'm just sorry I was just reading um, Julie Lomax commenting about the distributed two million in emergency funds to artists Um, I mean that's I agree, an excellent sort of lifeline for for many. And I do hope that the recovery plan looks like um, that it will continue. I I mean, I don't quite know where it can come from or how we can entice the the government to actually look at this more closely. But I think it has to be considered that we are on the sort of in an artistic front line, surviving as, as best we can with very little education and artistically. but well, I
2: think Julie Lonex, who's the CEO of yes. the Artists Information Company, I think she's yes. asking a very critical question. It is. Uh, that they have distributed 2 million in emergency funds to artists and freelance working across the UK. But given the current local and national lockdown, what do you think the recovery plan looks like for individual artists in terms mm. of, you know, how should the money be used uh, to actually help individual artists? Lucy,
4: would you like to respond to that um, I would just I would just want to say that I, in, in response to the first, the initial question at least that um isn't isn't the point that we need that, that, that there needs to be made um, that the that it's it's going to we're going to need art to, to help us navigate through um, through this time um I, I think I think that we don't really even know the the significance of what's happening now of the impact it's having on all of us um, we can't know because we're in the thick of it um, we were just starting to readjust to uh you know what people call the new normal um us all taking it in our, at our own pace um some of us needed to be in places some of us not and how that makes you feel um and then of course now we're day 1 of the new um the new lockdown and i i i i, I don't i think we're we're not um we're not able to i mean we can try but we're, we're so in the thick of it it's hard to really make sense of any of it and it's going to be art i believe the arts to, that's going to help us to um, make sense of all of this and, and help us reflect on it and help us move forward as a, as a, as, um, you know, as a community together. Um, so, so for me, that would be at the heart of any um, uh, debate as to why we need funding for the arts.
5: It's, it's really clear for me. Yeah. Um, can I just add there as well that because the numbers of students have risen for our intake this last year, to me is quite indicative of the people that do want to be involved in the arts and want to become practitioners. And that data should actually be part of a decision-making at the source of um, additional funding and support.
3: Can I just (laughs) add that... um, Sorry. sorry. Um, To say that politicians uh, have said to me, you know, this is pre-pandemic, their post bags weren't full of people saying how wonderful the arts were and that they needed more funding. Um, that may or may not be true to varying degrees. So um, I suppose that's one thing. Um, secondly, what I would say is that um, in terms of arts mattering to people, I think there is a very important debate and discuss- discussion to be had about who accesses the arts and how important it is to them. So I think we need to do more um, in terms of opening up the routes of access to the arts, both in terms of employment, but also in terms of enjoyment, appreciation and participation. I think that's vital. And the third thing I would say is what has become very clear in this pandemic is that all of those freelancers and creative practitioners um, that are employed Um, and that are invisible often in many ways. They, you know, it takes seven or eight people to, you know, back up an actor on the stage. We know that, we know that, but the politicians are starting to realize that the connection into the hospitality and leisure and tourism industry, that we need the arts um, to flourish in order for those other sectors to be able to um, uh, flourish themselves. I think those messages have really got through um, at the moment uh, to some of our politicians. And I think we just need to keep pushing, pushing at that door. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay,
3: Brianna, you were raising your hand
2: as well.
1: Yes, thank you, Baroness Prasher. I think when it comes to recovery for individual artists and freelancers, it's a very complex picture. We know that different artists and freelancers have different needs. You look at some that have been able to adapt, designers, um, you know, people that maybe are musicians in theater, but, you know, depending on your art practice and depending on your, the needs to, to actually be able to make your work, depending on how, um, you know, business driven, profit driven you are, how much of this is, is, is not your sole source of income. I actually think that as a nation, we don't have enough data and information on individual artists and freelance practitioners because they have fallen through the cracks. When we look at, um, you know, people that are carers or parents or have caring responsibilities at home, women being disproportionately impacted, uh, people from working class backgrounds. I think the answer one of the answers, I don't have it, but to recovery is actually looking at how are we investing in pathways for artists? Because apprenticeships are a pathway through and forward for young people emerging from college and university and other forms of training. Um, But the precarity of work is something that we need to address generally for the future of work. Uh, I think policies like universal basic income, I think unionization for artists and creative freelancers, which really depends on the art practice, is very valuable. I think thinking about fair work principles and policies that invest in... uh, Um, you know, paternity and maternity leave or parental leave or widely. I think there are actually a lot of ways that we can invest in recovery that will positively impact creative practitioners and artists and freelancers that actually have much more wider impacts across industries. And I think the last piece to say is so many artists and freelance practitioners, as we know, work across industries and are being disproportionately negatively impacted because the tourism and hospitality industry is so impacted by covid and the lockdown and so many of our arts practitioners work in those fields so i think we need to collect more data but think about uh, policies and support that's going to help people across the board that works as self-employed and freelance mm.
5: can i can i just say at this point as well this is why i as as course director i made a decision to re- have a collaboration with access web which has enabled a great support for the fourth year. We call it the fourth year, but in a year where they're needing support, needing advice, needing access to exhibitions, um, communities of other artists all around the country, not just Wales, not just England, but around the country, where they can actually visit, maybe change their environment, go into sort of um, residencies. So I think some something like Access Web to me is an incredibly value, valuable support to the future of the artists.
2: There is one last question, which I'd like to hear from Kay Scorer, I hope I pronounced them name correctly. She says, how can Northern, uh, uh, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland help us to raise the status of the arts with our leaders in Westminster, or is it best for artists to move out of England? I think the way I'd like to rephrase it is that the sense I get that you're very comfortable in Wales with the arts and, you know, get the sense in Northern Ireland and Scotland, you know, I mean, is, does it feel very different uh, to you than it does in, in, in England? I mean, it's, I mean, would you say that you feel better supported in terms of your context in Northern Ireland and Wales and, mm-hmm. and, and Scotland about the arts? Or is it for you an uphill struggle as well?
5: Um, well I if I don't if you don't mind me answering that one in terms of my position as I said at the beginning I've been incredibly well supported by Wales and um, finan- both financially and um, on any, well, on every level and I'm not quite sure if I would have had the same support had I been living back in England so I I'm not quite sure how to advise anybody but I would say that I have no problem about having moved to Wales at all. Very grateful I did. Rosheen, how does it feel
2: in Northern Ireland? Do you feel the arts are supported more than in Westminster? Uh,
3: uh, it, it's a hard one to answer. I know I talk to my colleagues in other um, arts councils in Scotland, um, you know, uh, and Wales and, and in England. And I know too that they have their challenges and are very aware of the stresses and strains that the system finds itself in particular, especially we're talking at this moment about the pressure from the regions and people feeling um, undervalued uh, and underrepresented in terms of the articulation of a national voice around what it means to be an artist or an arts organization um, in England. Uh, and I can say genuinely that people um, are struggling with that as a, at an institutional level. Um, and I know there's been a big debate around the distribution of lottery resources and the lottery postcode. We understand um, that, and that is a debate, I'm sure, that has happened in Wales, as indeed it would have happened in Scotland and to a lesser degree in, in Northern Ireland. But those are real issues because... It is a very complex process whereby um, uh, artists and arts organisations, particularly the latter, will tend to concentrate in, 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 in urban environments where there is a creative ecosystem to which they can relate and feel supported and engaged one with the other. Now, of course, with the advent um, of digital technologies and home working, that, in a sense, throws that model really a little bit up into the air. And I, I think that's one of the positive things that has come out potentially of this pandemic is that the platforms that we have now to relate and to each other, to work together and to present and distribute work has become more fluid, more open. And those who have the adaptive resilience to move into that territory, um, I think will will, will flourish. As institutions, I have to say, it's harder because as an institution, you are so high bound by government accounting and regulations and and all of that. Institutions, and I'm very conscious of this, we tend to be more Mm flat-footed in terms of our response to that growing and changing environment. But I know this is something, as I said, that colleagues wrestle with um, across the Arts Council. um we're, we're we're sensitive to that and genuinely want to try and alter um, that balance. Um so I'll leave it at that.
2: Okay. How about you, Brenna? Uh, very brief comments if either of you want to add anything.
1: Yes, um you know there's scarcity of funding for the arts across the UK and it's a challenge everywhere. I think the Arts Council in Scotland, Creative Scotland is under a lot of scrutiny and pressure from the arts community around how it's distributed funding, particularly in the last three years. And I think as a result, arts and creative communities are simply doing it on their own and finding ways to make art happen. I think um, back to the comments that were just made, you know, that you could speak to someone in the north of Scotland that would say the arts are funded and more favored in the central belt in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And there's a real remoteness and a real challenge around that. Um, I think that the digital kind of era and world will help, but we still have 20% of our population in Scotland that doesn't have access to broadband. Uh, There's real data and digital illiteracy kind of challenges. Um, or lack of access um, but you know the challenges are the same or uh, there's a lack of resource but there's also a lot of innovation and ingenuity as well.
2: Good. Lucy a very brief comment from you on this aspect from if I may say so the English perspective. <laughs>
4: Yeah, um, nothing. Nothing. I can't really add too much there because the the the, the, the um, focus of the question was more on the other three. Um, but just to add that, I when I was in Edinburgh, um, my four years in Edinburgh, I certainly um, felt that there was more. Um, I would actually say that there felt there was more uh, of a commitment to funding. Um, for those in Scotland um, than I've ever kind of experienced as an English person in England. Um, And it maybe goes to a bit to what Sue was really saying um, about how she she, she's not sure, um, but if she would have had the same experience in England as she's had in in Wales. Um,
1: yeah.
2: Well, I think time is running out and we have gotten a few minutes left. And all I have to really say that it's been a really engaging and a very rich conversation. I think we have just only begun to scratch the surface of it. There's a lot of issues that need to be pursued, but one thing which has really come clearly to me is what Breanna said, that we've got to start looking at artists as essential workers in in a way. And I thought that was very important. And the other common common theme that came out is the importance of education, Um, because I think all of you touched on that. And the third point, I think, which came from Roshin was the question of a proper infrastructure, because unless you really have institutions you know, supporting people in terms of the arts, I think it's going to be difficult. And of course, you touched very much on young people and inequality. So I think all these things are quite important, but I think there is a common ground that arts are really a critical and a crucial vehicle in terms of dealing with a whole range of issues and not list, you know, and the fact that uh, arts has no boundaries as such in terms of keeping people connected, but as I say, a very rich discussion. And I really want to thank the panel for joining us today. And I think for your very, very insightful and important contributions. And for me, it's been a pleasure to be part of this conversation. So thank you very much indeed for being part of the dialogue. And I also want to thank the audience, you know, and for the questions uh, and, and, and for your participation. And um, if uh, you want to um, get any more alerts about the forthcoming program, become the Cumberland Lodge events, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page on our website but I will hand over to Ed, who will give you a bit more details and kind of wind up. But from my perspective, thank you very much indeed. And I hope that we can keep in touch with you and keep the dialogue going in many in really different formats. So over to you, Ed, thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Usha. And um, just to reiterate, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming uh, events, you can sign up on the Keep In Touch page of our website or by emailing us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and if you enjoyed being part of this sort of discussion well uh, we have a monthly dialogue and debate webinar which generally takes place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of each month and you can dip into recordings of those on, on the website. Just before I uh, say goodbye just want to say uh, that like all charities Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic if you found today's uh, event useful, interesting, and you'd like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation. And you can do so via our Just Giving page. And we'll put the link up immediately after this webinar. But thank you once again. Thank you to Usha, to Brianna, to Roisin, to Lucy, and to Sue. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you all for joining us this evening. Good night.